Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 27 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hello. I still get the urge to do the Robin Williams, Mrs. Doubtfire, hello. I can (laughs) see it in your eyes. (laughs) I want to wind up. Um, Yeah, good. We are spoiled in Victoria this weekend with an AFL-obsessed public holiday, which... I don't care about the AFL, but I'm pretty happy for a day off. I'm happy for the day off. I'm fired up about that. And I'm equally, no, in fact, more fired up for the case today. Yeah, we've had some interesting group chats about this guy the last couple of days. Yes, absolutely. He's got a bit of fire in the belly. But before we get to all that, uh, you wanted to do something a bit different at the start here, Chloe. Yeah, we don't have any new patrons this week, but I do want to read out a couple of reviews because we appreciate you all taking the time to do that. It helps other people find us. And to be honest, I had a review read out on another podcast this week and I bloody loved it. So I want to do the same for some of our listeners. Sounds good. So just a couple. We've got great podcast from Loza P21. They said, I am binge listening to this well-presented podcast while I do my cleaning. I'm hooked. My house has never been so clean. True Blue Legends from Mez with a lot of Zs. She said, love these two. I feel like we are mates. Keep up the good work. I can see big things for this podcast. Thank you, Mez. And lastly, a review from The Urban Nomad who said, true crime content has been all the rage in recent years, but a quality, comprehensive Aussie true crime podcast has been hard to find. But here we have it. I stumbled across this podcast when discussing true crime with a colleague who had just moved to Adelaide from overseas. They were shocked and intrigued to learn they had just moved to the murder capital of Australia and I was looking for accessible content to recommend to them. Well produced and informative, with genuine and conversational delivery, peppered with a delightful Aussie slang, Sean and Chloe have somehow found the perfect way to balance conveying this deeply disturbing content whilst remaining good, humoured, compassionate and sensitive. So that's a review if we've ever had one. That's a ripping review. Thank you very much. Peppered. I like that. Yeah. Chloe. Yeah. Peppered. Um, <laughs> Reined in. But <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get into it. On April the 24th, 2018, as many of us who mix in true crime circles will remember well, 
Joseph D'Angelo, the alleged Golden State killer slash East Area rapist slash original Night Stalker, was apprehended for a spate of brutal rapes and murders committed throughout California in the mid-1970s to mid-1980s. And while the sheer number of victims this offender amassed has never and hopefully will never have an Australian parallel, the unnerving similarities the offender or offenders we're talking about today have with this case presents the very real possibility that we might have. And that is, here in Australia, throughout the late 70s until the early 90s, it's possible that one offender might have been responsible for an equally sickening series of brutal sexual assaults and murders, many which remain unsolved to this day. And if it wasn't for the courage of one of this guy's victims and two security guards, he may never have been caught. February 2nd, 1980, Tweed Heads West, Northern New South Wales. 33-year-old Jeff Parkinson and 29-year-old Lorraine Harrison left the Twin Town Services Club, having just finished a dinner date. They exited through the rear of the building, made their way across the lot to where Jeff had parked his car. Having enjoyed a pleasant evening, the chivalrous Jeff opened the passenger's side door for Lorraine before going around to the driver's side. But before Jeff had put the keys in the ignition, a masked balaclava-wearing assailant brandishing a rifle confronted the pair. He shuffled quickly into the back seat and demanded the stunned and terrified young couple to drive to the secluded nearby Kobakai Creek. Around 1.45am, Jeff, Lorraine and the balaclava-wearing gunman arrived at Kobukai Creek around 10 minutes out of Tweed Heads. It was an isolated spot, with no witnesses. But as the car pulled to a stop, Jeff Parkinson did something that stunned their abductor. He attacked him. Whatever plans the gunman had to that point, he had to abandon, when a bold and brave Jeff grabbed the butt of the rifle and launched himself into the back seat at the man. Jeff shouted for Lorraine to run, and she did. Flight instinct kicked in, and Lorraine leapt from the car and ran as fast as her legs could carry her. Lorraine emerged from the still darkness of night and flagged down a passing motorist and alerted them to the attack. Then she heard the gunshots. They alerted the police, and upon returning to the scene, discovered Jeff Parkinson's body. He'd been shot three times and was fatally wounded. And the balaclava killer had vanished into the night. Ashley Mervyn Coulston was born in 1956 
in the town of Tangambalanga, known by the locals as Tangam, which is in the northeast of Victoria, close to the New South Wales border, about 20 kilometres from Wodonga. The town is in the Kiwa Valley, which is well known for its dairy products. And the Coulston family indeed had a dairy farm of their own back at this time. Nowadays, the small town has many of the common businesses you would see in any small country town. And the main dairy lifeblood in the region is the Murray Goulburn Cooperative, which most of us laymans would associate with the Devondale brand of dairy products. But back in the 60s, there was less consolidation on that front and the Coulstons, along with many other families, ran their own lots. We don't have a lot of information on the Coulston family, which can be interesting and provide insights, but we do have a bit about Ashley himself. From a young age, Ashley Coulston struggled to keep up in his schooling. Reading and writing were a difficult task for him, and he found it hard to make friends his own age. As a result, he often gravitated towards the company of younger kids to socialise with. Coulston was also said to have a kind of pent-up rage or anger, which he'd keep under wraps by and large until boiling point, when all hell would break loose. Tony Shepler, a former high school teacher of Coulston's, later reflected on the young man's behaviour. Quote, He couldn't cope out of sheer frustration. He would be ready to kill. It wasn't rare for him to rip his shirt off in the classroom and have the buttons fly off. He'd smash rulers and pencils. Into his teens, Coulston would harness this anger into petty criminal activity. At age 13, it was reported that he'd committed break-ins of local properties and that suspicious fires began cropping up around the family farm, which is a concern when your farm is your livelihood. At the age of 14, this is in 1971 by this time, Coulston would begin to display some even more worrying tendencies than before, right about as puberty kicked in for him. In April of this year, a couple of months after heading to school in what would have been Year 9 or Form 3, Coulston began some peeping Tom activities. But this would escalate rapidly from a peep to a stalk and then a full-blown abduction. 20-year-old Helinka Wilson and 21-year-old Carol Scott were a pair of young primary school teachers in Tangambalanga. They were living their regular lives within their flat in town when a brazen and forceful Ashley Coulston busted into their home toting a gun at the pair. He forced the young women at gunpoint to play cards with him. Snap, go fish, blackjack, who knows and who cares because this was but an introduction to Ashley Coulston for Helinka and Carol. After making them watch some television with him, Coulston forced the girls at gunpoint into their car where he ordered them to drive him to Sydney. What Coulston's plans were for the two ladies, we can't be sure, but we can safely assume it wasn't to buy them a pair of milkshakes. Coulston had them drive for almost a couple of hours until they reached Gundagai, where the famous dog on the tucker box resides, and it was here he decided to fetch himself some food from a roadside diner. He instructed Helinka and Carol to pull over and wait in the car while he did this. But being 14 and inexperienced in kidnapping at this time, Coulston made the mistake of trusting the women to some extent. When Carol and Helinka sensed the opportunity, they fled, screaming as they went, before they reached the safety of a nearby truck driver and alerted attendants at the roadhouse. Coulston was apprehended 
and unlike the revered statue of the faithful canine nearby, he was a reviled dog and the only tucker he'd be eating for the next three months was prison chow. And we say prison, he was 14 so it was actually a boys home he was sent to for this short stint, three months at Melbourne's Turana Boys Home. And he made only one friend there, a person who wasn't named in the research, but their reflections on Coulston during this time would align with many others we'd hear in the future. He was a loner, shy and secretive, and even disclosed some disturbing plans to this friend about his plans to kidnap and rape women in secluded locations once he was out. So I think we can see here from a young age, Coulston was exhibiting a pretty serious fantasy game in his evolving warped teenage mind. But one of two things happened after his release. He either managed to suppress these fantasies and curb the urge to act on them for a number of years, because it's some time before we see him caught offending again, or he continued to offend and simply wasn't caught. We'll explore that more later on in the episode. But in the mid-70s, after Coulston came back home to his family, they packed up shop and moved to northern New South Wales, to a town named Kyogle. This was a similar place in terms of its country town vibes, cattle and dairy farming industries. But perhaps they viewed it as a fresh start for all concerned. In the late 70s until 1980, Coulston would live in this area not far from Tweed Heads and the Gold Coast. What he did exactly during this time, there's not a lot of information about. But what we can assume is that likely he worked on the family farm or in menial jobs of some kind. He was living in southern Queensland at one point during this time, but obviously those areas are very close. So he was in and around this area for a few years until 1980 when he moved down to a suburb of Sydney. And this is an important spot in this tale to drop a pin or to bookmark because we're going to come back to this time period of 1979-1980 a little later in the episode to discuss a few more things. But for now, we'll put a pin in it. In the early 80s, Coulston lived in the area of Sutherland in Sydney's southern suburbs. He lived for a brief period with a lady named Cathy and her husband, and she too described him as an introverted and reserved kind of guy. He also lived in Cronulla aboard a yacht at one time. And he began riding a black Kawasaki motorcycle, another important thing to note. Coulston worked at Hertz Rental Car for a time before he was given the boot by his manager after a female work colleague alleged he'd been stalking her. And we know that's consistent. Whether he managed to keep a lid on his impulses or not, he was certainly thinking the same way during this time. His former manager at Hertz later commented on another instance of Coulston's behaviour. I had one set of girls who all had long blonde hair and tans, good-looking females, and he began to stalk them, followed them home, and just sat outside their houses and stayed there, sitting on the ground. This boss of Coulston's, Megan Plater, eventually dismissed him due to the suspicious activity around the place of work, such as cars being siphoned of petrol, and one blue Toyota Corolla even went missing at one point. This manager believed that Coulston had something to do with it, although they couldn't prove it. It was just a feeling they had. But that aside, Ashley Coulston was seemingly going about a normal existence with no reported run-ins with the law for over 10 years by this point. And it was in his early to mid-20s that Coulston became very interested in sailing. 
which is probably why he was shacked up on a yacht at one stage. And this was probably due to the growing popularity of the sport at this time, with Australia having won the 1983 America's Cup, which was a big deal. A brief synopsis on this for those too young to know or too old to recall in detail. An Australian syndicate bankrolled by Alan Bond, a name well known to many Australians for his upper echelon business deals, including purchasing Channel 9 from Kerry Packer at one point until he went bankrupt and served a four-year prison term for fraud, this syndicate entered the Australia 2 vessel into the esteemed race representing the Royal Perth Yacht Club. The yacht was skippered by John Bertrand and went on to defeat reigning champ Liberty to end the longest winning streak in sporting history to that point. So it was a huge deal at the time and the sport subsequently grew in popularity. This, in my opinion, probably contributed to Ashley Coulston's desire to get into sailing. And that's because of many reflections people would have on Coulston, describing him as being a guy who wanted to be famous. He wanted to make it, to make a name for himself at something. Many people would note this as being an inbuilt part of his personality. And it was through sailing that Coulston would attempt to achieve that. And we haven't spoken much about Coulston's appearance yet, Close, so we'll touch on that before getting into this next part of the story. To me, he had this very stereotypical 80s male look. He looked like your typical 12th man carrying the drinks at the local cricket. Not quite there, but around about the place, desperate to get his chance to throw the willow at a few or roll the arm over a few slow medium paces with the old ball before the strike bowlers came back on with the new cherry. That's all very cricket-inspired, that description, but he looks like that to me, like a washed-up 80s cricketer. Even his name sounds like that. And physically, he was athletic when young, got a bit paunchier around the middle when he uh, aged, as we all do, but he was shy of six foot, about 5'9", 5'10", with a mop of curly brown hair that was cut into the Tom Hanks, Jerry Seinfeld style of mullet that was popular back then and it didn't really die out until the 90s, I guess. But he had these piercing ocean blue-green eyes too. And we'll post a photo of him, obviously, so you can all see this. But his eyes are an important detail to remember, so keep that in the back of your minds. Coulston spent most of 1987 designing and building his custom-made boat, which he'd call the Gaudet 88. The intention was to break the record for the smallest boat to sail from Australia to New Zealand. But things wouldn't go to plan in this quest for Ashley Coulston. Coulston busted his ass and was said to have locked himself away for hours and days at a time building this boat. Again, we'll post a picture of this for you all to see. He set sail from Port Stephens in G'day 88 on the 26th of January 1988, headed for New Zealand. Again, Coulston had his sights set on achieving fame with this conquest, this adventure he was embarking upon. 
And all went well for a time as Coulston glided across the high seas in his tiny yellow tub. New Zealand was apparently in sight for Coulston when the ravaging cyclone Bowler tore through the region. This was a massive and costly cyclone that began in Fiji, went on and peaked in Vanuatu before hitting the northern island of New Zealand. The damage to property totaled over 82 million US dollars. Three people lost their lives and hundreds were evacuated from their homes as riverbanks broke and floods raged throughout the area. And Ashley Coulston got stuck in the middle of this thing, in his little bathtub boat. G'day 88 was beaten to a pulp, but it stayed afloat and Coulston survived the deadly cyclone, probably out of sheer luck. 46 days he spent lost at sea in stormy conditions trying to survive. So not only did he have the Tom Hanks curly mullet going on, but Coulston was doing some real-life castaway action here too. Not to diminish Tom Hanks's good name at all, but I can actually see Coulston in his little bathtub boat with a Wilson of his own, going batshit crazy talking to it, except it wouldn't have been a Wilson-branded ball, but a cheap knockoff of some kind. On the 12th of March 1988, Coulston activated his emergency beacon when an oil tanker was passing and he was subsequently rescued by the ship, unfortunately. The busted remnants of G'day 88 would wash up on the New Zealand shore a few months later. Coulston stayed there during this time, I inferred, possibly recovering. And this wild high seas adventure would indeed earn Coulston some fame, but not the kind he desired. He subsequently received the moniker within the press of Captain Bathtub, which I'm sure was exactly what he was hoping for. Perhaps this is what spurred Coulston on to attempt his voyage again, only a few months later, in October of 1988, when he left New Zealand this time headed for Australia. He successfully made this journey without too much trouble and arrived in Brisbane on the 6th of January 1989, to about as much fanfare as when he left, I expect, which wasn't much. So overall, this expedition probably brought all the wrong kind of attention to Ashley Coulston. How much that bothered him or contributed to his future behaviour, we can't be sure. But things would ramp up for Coulston after this time, and not in a good way. He'd been seeing a woman named Janice McLeod for about four years by the time 1992 rolled around, They had met in Port Stephens around the time Coulston was planning his voyage to New Zealand and the pair had begun living together and they were living on a yacht, which Coulston had also done while living in the Sydney area. But by 1992, they'd moved down to Victoria to the Hastings area at the Western Port Marina where their yacht named Gulliver was berthed. During this time, Coulston was working as a yacht delivery boy for the rich folk at the Mariner. So I'm guessing he was kind of like the yacht gopher, you know, he'd fetch the yachts and bring them in for the owners. It was likely inside the Gulliver over a 12-month period from 91 to 92 that Coulston really got into watching action films, and particularly violent ones at that. Confessions of a Hitman was one that he notably enjoyed. But watching action films in itself isn't weird, indeed it didn't raise Janice's eyebrows, She described Coulston during their relationship as the dearest man she'd ever known who treated her like no one else. But he did show some of his true feelings to Janice, telling her he wanted to become famous for doing unusual things and that he didn't believe he fitted in with the broader society norm, all of the regular punters out there. And Coulston would show exactly what he meant by all of this on one fateful night 
during Melbourne's long and cold winter of 1992. In preparation, Coulston had travelled to Tasmania and bought a 22 rifle a few months earlier. He'd bought this, according to him, because he was afraid of sharks. Plausible, if you consider his 46 days lost at sea. He might have seen a few fins around him, since the end was near. But this wasn't the truth of it. Coulson himself was the shark. Over the next couple of months, he whittled away at the barrel and stock, shortening them both considerably, and he manufactured a crude silencer of sorts from an old oil filter. On July the 29th, 1992, Coulston's next voyage would be even more deadly than Cyclone Bowler. Anne Smurden and Karen Henstridge, both 22, lived together in a house on Summit Road in Burwood, Victoria. Anne was from Cryabram, and she was a primary school teacher who was currently undertaking some additional postgrad study. Karen had been living in the suburbs for about six months, but she was originally from a more rural setting. Her family had a property in Hamilton. In a few days' time, Karen was returning to the family home with her mum, who was due to come and pick her up. She'd had her fun down in the city, but had enough of it by this time and just wanted to return home. So Anne and Karen put an ad in the Herald Sun Classifieds looking for a new housemate to fill Karen's spot and pay the rent and bills after she left. On this cold winter's night of July 29, 1992, the pair planned to meet and greet a few potential housemates, give them an informal interview of sorts, as you do. But they weren't going it alone. Anne's brother-in-law, Peter Dempsey, had come along as a sort of unofficial security for the evening, like any good brother-in-law would. Dempsey was a Telstra technician, or telecom as they were known at the time, so he wasn't there to put unruly applicants into sleeper holds, just an extra set of eyes and ears. A man who'd possibly given his name as Duncan was due to arrive that evening, but when the appointment time came, it wasn't Duncan who came through the door. Instead, it was the curly-haired, chico roll-eating, sunburnt lobster-red face of Ashley Coulston who arrived. Coulston wasted no time. He was prepared, and he quickly subdued Anne, Kerry and Peter at gunpoint with his sawn-off rifle, and then he bound them all with cable ties. He separated them next, in what order we don't know, but Karen into one of the bedrooms, Anne into the hallway, and Peter into the lounge room. Coulston then placed towels or dressing gowns over each of their heads, and with his cut-down 22, shot Anne, Karen and Peter once each in the head at point-blank range. He then left and drove back to his and Janice's yacht at Hastings, where he arrived around 10.30pm, but not before giving himself an alibi by stopping at Janice's work at Frankston Hospital for a quick visit. Sadly, it would be Karen's mum who would discover the three bodies in the house at Summit Road, Burwood, the following morning, after she had to break into the place when no one answered the door. On a side note, Anne's body was discovered naked from the waist down, an important point to note because there's an implication of sexual assault. But I haven't read that reported specifically in relation to this terrible crime, but it does potentially lend to an MO that we'll discuss a bit later. One of the police officers involved in investigating the Burwood murders, Mick Stefanovic, this officer's name was, he described it as a shocking scene, one of the worst in Victorian history, and that it looked to him like the offender had done it before. And this was going by the way the offender had controlled and coordinated these three people with relative ease. 
This won't be the last time we hear from Mick Stefanovic as we go along. For the following months, police really had no leads to go on with the Burwood murders. Coulston had left little to no trace of himself at the scene. He was swift and calculated. Janice, too, had no idea of her yacht cohabitating boyfriend's sordid extracurricular activities. Around a month after the shocking Burwood triple murder, which made headlines across the state and indeed news around the country at the time, police held a press conference urging the public to come forward with any information. Unbeknown to the police at this time, this may well have lit a fire under the backside of Ashley Coulston, as his twisted mind was seemingly beginning to live out many of the fantasies he'd clearly been having since he was a teen. On the 2nd of September 1992, around five weeks after the Burwood murders, Coulson was out on the prowl again, lurking in the nighttime shadows, stalking his prey. He'd rolled down St Kilda Road, Melbourne, and parked his car near the National Gallery of Victoria. With him, Coulston had his refined kill kit, sawn-off rifle, oil filter silencer, and cable ties. Meanwhile, after enjoying a night out in Melbourne, young couple Richard and Anne Shalligan were walking back to their car near the Botanic Gardens. They hopped into the vehicle, and a man emerged from the shadows and motioned for Anne to wind her window down, which she did. The assailant, who we know to be Coulston, shoved the barrel of his sawn-off rifle into Anne's face. Richard, thinking quickly, grabbed what money they had and pushed it in Coulston's direction. But Coulston, as we know, didn't want the cash. He had other intentions. He forced the couple from their car and ordered them at gunpoint to a darker, more secluded area of the Botanic Gardens. Once away from any prying eyes or streetlights, Coulston then forced the scared couple face first onto the ground. Richard noticed the bag Coulston was carrying, his kill kit. Coulston began to fumble through its contents, pulling out some cable ties to restrain the pair and momentarily put his gun down. Richard wasted no time when the opportunity presented itself. He lunged at Coulston, grabbed him from behind around the neck and began yelling at the top of his lungs for his wife Anne to run. And run she did. As Richard battled the homicidal Coulston in the shadows, Anne beelined for St Kilda Road. Coulston and Richard duked it out and in his frantic state, Richard won out and managed to throw Coulston's gun away about a metre or so before he made a run for it in the same direction as Anne. As the couple emerged from the shadows of the Botanic Gardens, fleeing for their lives, they spotted a pair of security guards patrolling nearby. They ran straight for the men and babbled their story in what was likely a panicked garble of words. But these guards, two guys named Graham Loder and Paul Sycam, they made sense of the ramblings and made out the darting shadow of Coulston bobbing and weaving amongst the trees. The guards immediately called for police backup and took off on foot after Coulston. But Coulston didn't run at first. Instead, he pulled out his gun and began firing at the guards. Five shots Coulston rattled off as the guards ran towards him. One of the bullets hit Paul Sycam in the hip, partially ricocheting off his keychain, and he heard another fly past his head, missing him by potentially millimetres. But Sycam and Loder didn't stop pursuing the gunman, and when Coulston realised this, he hightailed it out of there. Bolting through the Botanic Gardens, Coulston emerged from the shadows eventually with the security guards hot on his heels, and attempted to hijack a string of cars from passing motorists. 
but he continually struck out. Luck wasn't on Ashley Coulston's side this time. As the chase drew to a close, a breathless Coulston was surrounded by police and the guards had caught up to him. But Coulston wasn't giving up. He was going to be famous for something. He raised his gun and pointed it directly at the head of a female police officer who'd arrived on scene. And while it was Coulston who'd been enjoying 80s action films during this time, it wouldn't be him who'd ultimately execute a move that was seemingly straight out of one of them. Taking a leaf out of the Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme textbook, security guard Paul Sycam leapt into action and sidekicked Ashley Coulston in the head. Coulston went down, wilting like G'day 88 under the crashing waves of Cyclone Bowler, and was promptly arrested, effectively ending his reign of terror. The police had their man, but for not only this thwarted attack on the Shalligans, but for the Burwood murders too. The evidence against Coulston was strong. Despite him leaving no physical evidence at the scene, he neglected to dispose of the one main thing connecting him to the triple murder, the sawn-off rifle. Despite interviewing over 400 people who had advertised for housemates to try and track down a suspect, police had hit dead ends down that line of inquiry and every other one they had in the Burwood case. But now, with Coulston's gun at their disposal, forensic examiners were able to match Coulston's cut-down rifle to the murder weapon at Burwood. Blood spatter on the towels and dressing gown Coulston had thrown over the victim's heads also matched spatter that was on the silencer. He hadn't washed that off, despite living in a mariner on a yacht with ample access to water. And to top it off, the cable ties Coulston had in his kill kit matched the ones used to bind the Burwood victims also. Coulston clammed up to police at first, but eventually, when presented with the overwhelming evidence, had to come up with something to explain it all. So he concocted this implausible story about having cut down the rifle for a guy named Rod Davis who he'd apparently been paid $250 by to do the sawn-off job. Davis had then returned the rifle to Coulston's car after the murders took place. he told this same feeble story to his girlfriend Janice, who relayed the same to police. Janice also gave Coulston an alibi about him visiting her at work that night, which we pointed out earlier was clearly a tactic of Coulston's. But Coulston's tale held about as much water as one of his shitty homemade boats – and it wasn't made any better by a confession he made to another inmate while being held before trial. He told this inmate that he'd killed the three kids in Burwood, and that his only mistake was not getting rid of the murder weapon. And this probably speaks to Coulston's raging ego and desire to become famous, but he'd become infamous for committing this crime. Coulston pleaded not guilty at trial and didn't take the stand. The jury took two days to convict him and he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences with a non-parole period of 30 years. But Coulston appealed this and won the right to a new trial. In this trial, he came up with what he thought must have been a more believable story, but in reality, was once again about as good as his Captain Bathtub nickname. He alleged in this new line of defence that a Vietnamese gang was responsible for the Burwood murders and that the police had faked the gun evidence. Why Coulston thought this was a good idea, we don't know. Perhaps he bought a bad pork bum one time. Either way, it was even more implausible than his Rod Davis defence, which also sucked. He was convicted again of the three murders, 
sentenced to three life terms, but this time, Justice Norman O'Brien refused to set a non-parole period, meaning Ashley Coulston will never see the light of day again. So, Coulston's locked away at HM Prison, Barwon, by all reports. Case closed, right? Well, this is where things really take a turn and we enter the realm of potentially linked crimes or series of crimes, to be more accurate, and things get much more dark and disturbing from this point on, as if they weren't already. Police investigator Mick Stefanovic, who we mentioned earlier, began to dig a bit deeper into Coulston's past. He'd assessed Coulston as this bland, nothing of a person who'd achieved little professionally and personally, with a string of failures and lack of accomplishments in both areas in his life. So what was making this guy tick all this time? And that was a very good question. In Stefanovic's own words, Coulston's 36 and he's killed three innocent, wonderful people in Burwood and attempted to kill two more a month later in St Kilda. What's he been doing in the intervening 20 years? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Going back in time now to where we dropped our pinpoint earlier in this tale, to the years of 1979 and 1980, when Ashley Coulston was living in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland, between the areas of Tweed Heads and the Gold Coast. Over a 12-month period, an attacker originally known as the Balaclava Rapist and ultimately the Balaclava Killer would commit a string of brutal sexual assaults in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland, and he eventually shot and killed a man. The attacker wore a balaclava, or ski mask, for our international listeners, carried a sawn-off firearm, and escaped from the crime scenes riding a motorbike. And while he was reportedly a polite and apologetic rapist, his actions said otherwise. They were clinical and callous. Descriptions of the rapist were generally the same from all victims and fit the following summary – 177 centimetres tall, mid-twenties in age, athletic build, dark brown hair, bushy eyebrows, and evil steely blue eyes. This last point was universally emphasised by the victims. The attacker was said to have a noticeable chemical smell emitting from him, and for some reasons not released. Police believed him to be a tradesman or factory worker of some kind. An article by Lexi Cartwright from the Gold Coast Bulletin, published May 7, 2016, summarises the attacks as follows. December 15, 1979, a 30-year-old Tugan woman is bundled into the boot of her car at gunpoint and driven to the Gold Coast hinterland where she is raped. December 25, 1979, two weeks later, on Christmas Day, the rapist ambushed a cabarita couple who were cuddling in their parked car. 
The woman was assaulted after the masked man restrained her partner's hands by winding up the car windows. December 28, 1979. A man and a woman are bombarded at their isolated farmhouse at Cudgeon. The woman, ordered to tape her partner's hands, is raped while the man is forced to watch. January 25, 1980. A married Burley Heads couple are confronted in their home. The woman is forced to bind her husband's hands and she says she is pregnant. The rapist relents and leaves. February 2, 1980. The rapist targets Jeff Parkinson and his date at Tweed Heads. The woman flees, but Parkinson is shot dead. The balaclava rapist crimes culminated in this murder. So the details of the attack on Jeff Parkinson and Lorraine Harrison is what we covered in the introduction. Jeff sadly was killed and this murder, along with the other balaclava rapist attacks, remains unsolved to this day. His family are still seeking justice, as I'm sure are many of the other victims. In 1981, a $50,000 New South Wales government reward was announced for information leading to the conviction of those responsible for Mr Parkinson's murder, and this remains in place to this day. Seems a bit on the low end for modern times, that reward. There'd be a period of several months in activity after Jeff Parkinson's murder from the Balaclava killer until October 31, 1980, when a Gold Coast woman was attacked and raped in her Burley Waters apartment. Her balaclava-wearing attacker fled the scene on a motorbike and then vanished. This would spell an end to the balaclava killer's spree in northern New South Wales, southern Queensland. An absolutely devastating crime spree that affected the lives of so many. It's difficult to imagine the fear and frustration at the time at not being able to apprehend this guy, hard as the police tried, I'm sure. But there's not a lot of information out there about this case. And there's even less again about the next string of sexual assaults. In the mid-1980s, from about 85 to 87, the Sutherland area of suburban Sydney, New South Wales, would host another brutal series of sexually motivated attacks by a gun-toting, balaclava-wearing maniac who'd be dubbed the Sutherland Rapist. The MO of these attacks was much the same as the balaclava killer and, going full circle, Ashley Coulston. Again, the number of attacks and details surrounding the Sutherland assaults isn't really out there for public consumption that I'm aware of, at least not on surface level on the internet, but I did read there was at least five attacks. But these attacks would later be linked by police and other experts when digging into Ashley Coulston's background. When investigating the Burwood murders, Mick Stefanovic attended the Coulston family farm and discovered a shotgun and a 22 rifle, along with two fired 22 caliber bullet casings. So this was in addition to the Burwood murder weapon, this one. They also found a box full of real-life detective magazines from the USA, and these had stories about serial killers and rapists. There were also boxes of keys, later traced back to motel rooms across New South Wales. So a disturbing find that prompted Stefanovic to his line of thinking. What else had this guy done? And Ashley Coulston was subsequently named by police as a suspect in both the Balaclava and Sutherland rapist attacks and in the murder of Jeffrey Parkinson. In a news.com.au article, forensic anthropologist and criminologist Dr Xanthi Mallet said 
She is sure Coulston is responsible for more crimes than he's ever been found guilty of, and a prime suspect in some of the country's most terrifying unsolved sprees, such as the Balaclava and Sutherland cases we've just mentioned. She also said, But I'm equally sure that he's not going to tell us any time soon. He likes the control. Dr Mallet has also written about Coulston in her book Cold Case Investigations, as has crime author Emily Webb in her book Murder in Suburbia, which we used in research for this case. So the similarities between things in these sets of attacks and Ashley Coulston's life timeline and known crimes are compelling to say the least. The method to begin with was very similar to how Anne, Peter and Karen were attacked in Burwood, and Richard and Anne Shalligan too for that matter. Coulston rode a black Kawasaki motorbike, as we know. He lived near the Tweed Heads area and then in southern Queensland when the Balaclava attacks occurred in 1979-1980. Then they mysteriously stopped, and Coulston had subsequently left the area and moved to Cronulla, near Sutherland in Sydney, where he lived on a boat. Then the Sutherland rapes began. Blood type evidence was able to link the Sutherland and Balaclava attacks, and this blood grouping matched Ashley Coulston. However, blood grouping, the tool police had at the time, was more of an elimination tool, if anything. It could exclude someone, but not prove someone's guilt, unlike the DNA of today. And unfortunately, it appears from latest reports that I've read that genetic samples from the Balaclava and Sutherland attacks weren't properly stored for future testing. So unless that's not the case and was reported incorrectly, or some new evidence comes to light, definitively connecting these cases, which includes Jeffrey Parkinson's unsolved murder, will prove extremely difficult for police. But Mick Stefanovic hasn't let the cases go. He's relentlessly pursued justice for both the Balaclava and Sutherland victims and surviving family members of Jeffrey Parkinson. Senior police have urged for reinvestigations into the cases, writing to both the Commissioner and State Coroner. Stefanovic also ponders on what happened with the spent bullet casings found at the Coulston family farm. Apparently these two, like the DNA samples, haven't been kept. At least we know that Coulston will die in prison. That's a relief. He expressed no remorse for his victims and indeed maintains he didn't commit any of the crimes he was found guilty of. He's been reprimanded in prison too for having explicit material in his cell. Whether Coulston was the perpetrator in these cases or not, there's still victims out there wanting answers. Finishing up here by reading an excerpt from another article published in the Gold Coast Bulletin, in which a man in recent times came forward declaring, as the title states, I know who the balaclava killer was. Father of three, Frank D. Michelle, has told the Gold Coast Bulletin how he woke one hot summer night at his Burley Heads home in December 1980. 10 months after the murder of Jeffrey Parkinson, to find a man crouched on the floor beside his wife, who was also in bed. If we recall, this was around the time of the final balaclava rapist attack too, also in the similar area around Burley Waters. Frank says he recognised the man as he pursued him out of the house, believing he had been a visitor to his house for Christmas drinks. The attacker was wearing a balaclava and rode off on a motorbike. He didn't name the man in the article, but said he'd given this information to the police. 
The description Frank gave of the intruder was very similar to the details we've mentioned throughout this episode. 180-ish centimetres tall, mid-twenties, athletic build, with dark brown hair, bushy eyebrows, and steely blue eyes. But that's it. That's the case of Ashley Coulston, the balaclava killer, and the Sutherland Rapist Glow. This guy, uh, he's the kind of guy that keeps you up at night. I have a lot of thoughts on him, but not many that I want recorded <laughs> in perpetuity. But yeah. what an absolute low life. I keep thinking of the lead up to the crimes and potentially the things that we don't know about. The fact that the victims had no idea that they were potentially being watched or stalked. It's so scary and so infuriating that someone could get around in the world behaving like that and planning those things. It makes me so sick and so scared. I think you're going to talk a bit more about this, Sean, but I'll agree in advance that the link between this piece of shit and the balaclava killer and the Sutherland rapist is so overwhelming. I'm glad that he's in prison and I just hope with all the familial DNA linkages that are happening... I just wonder in the coming years if we might get some absolute closure around the other suspected and unsolved crimes related to this. But that's pretty much it from me. Your thoughts? The parallels between this guy, Coulston, the balaclava killer and the Sutherland rapist, with that of the Golden State killer, East Area rapist, original night stalker in the US, are also pretty overwhelming to me if indeed they are the one person. The MO of this guy, the ski mask, balaclava, the brutality of the sexual assaults restraining the victims, the moving to different areas and different monikers potentially attributed to this one offender, the willingness to shoot at people too, like Jeffrey Parkinson, very reminiscent of the shooting of Claude Snelling when Joseph D'Angelo was allegedly the Visalia ransacker. By that I mean it was seemingly isolated, followed by a long period of inactivity, that crime. Then the shooting at the security guards by Coulston. The Golden State Killer too, willingly shot at the police, allegedly. So a lot of parallels for me. The escalation of Coulston's behaviour too, the peeping, stalking, all the way up to the sickening rapes and cold-blooded killings. I just can't help but think... I'm so glad that Richard Shalligan and those two security guards stopped this guy. This guy wasn't going to stop by himself, clearly. There was a compulsion there, a pathology there, as Paul Holes would say, Chloe. (laughs) And I can't help but wonder about other victims that we don't know about, that we haven't discussed today in both Australia and abroad when he was washed up in New Zealand too. If Coulston is linked to these other two cases... It's very possible we may have many more victims of not only sexual assault, but unsolved murders out there that could be attributed to him. It's very possible. The crimes we know he committed were brutal and heinous, and my thoughts go out to those victims and their families, particularly Karen's mum, to have found her daughter like that, which would would have just been a mortifying experience. I do not like this guy. And in the photos of him, he just has that face. A face you want to smash. This shit-licking grin plastered across his face. I just wish that oil tanker had ploughed straight over the top of him off the coast of New Zealand back in 88. Or even better, a shark had swallowed him whole. 
That's my thoughts. So that's that. And to give it a bit of context, if people aren't super familiar with the Golden State Killer, we've spoken about it in previous episodes, but there is a great book on it called I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara and a podcast series of the same name. It's an American case. So for people that are keen to go international with these things, it is well worth a listen. Um, But moving on to our happy thoughts, um, what have you got this week, Sean, since you threw your long weekend in last week? Don't forget that by the time this comes out, the long weekend will be over. Yeah, but you've already used that last week as your happy thought, so you yeah. have to think of something new this week. Oh, you well. wasted it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I used it last week. How's it any worse? <laughs> so my happy thought this week, this is quite funny, is that we were, I was talking to my daughter and we were discussing where she'd had one of these, we were talking about a particular toy. She couldn't find this particular toy and this, and I was like, well, where is it? And yeah, we'll go and have a look for it. She's like, I know where it is. I said, okay, where is it? She said, it's buried in the garden. (laughs) (laughs) Did you investigate? (laughs) No, I just thought to myself, I thought, oh, I'm not talking too much about (laughs) true crime around her. Which I don't at all. It was just, but that was where my mind went, which is yeah. completely innocent. Yeah. But not a particularly happy thought, but it was kind of funny. So. That is funny. Yeah. What's yours? Um, mine is that we have a long weekend. So I'm not copying you because you had that last week. Yes. However, I did write in my notes, suck on that, Sean. You can't use that this week, but you didn't. So you got me. Um, I am just excited for an extra day and I have a friend's wedding tomorrow. So I get to celebrate love, and then still have a weekend, which is even better. Yeah. Mm. Awesome stuff. Yeah, cheating it out. Uh, If you have any case suggestions, feedback, or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. And you'll see everything you need on that page, what you can sign up for and what you'll get. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us and helps other people find the show as well. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. We really appreciate it. We'll catch you all next time. Thank you. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.